Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. You and I need to be good to our future. We need to make the decision that I want to be sexually pure in my life because there's nothing but grief down the road for those who cash in their integrity. Because you've got two choices. You can, from this point on, live a sexually honorable and pure life, or you can break God's rules and make your future a living hell. Most of us don't like to wait for things, and our society has basically conditioned us to expect instant gratification for pretty much everything. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is challenging our expectations, especially when it comes to sexual purity. We're looking at a difficult passage in 2 Samuel chapter 13 about the rape of Tamar and the devastating consequences that came as a result. Now, this message comes with a warning that it could trigger sensitive listeners and may not be appropriate for children. Well, let's get started. Look at our passage, back to it, verse 18. The servants put her out and bolted the door after her, and she was wearing this richly ornamented robe. It's the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put these ashes on her head, and she tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head, and she went away weeping aloud as she went. And Absalom said, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? And with empty words of comfort, he says, be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Verse 21, when King David heard all this, he was furious. No kidding. You think sex out of context is victimless? Oh, I know this is rape, but what about two consenting adults? Victimless? Oh, yeah. Ask the children of the divorced families. It was all instigated by someone chasing a gratification outside the bounds of marriage. Talk to the parents that are hurt deeply because of the, the sin of their children. David was furious. And Absalom, the brother of the one who was violated, never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he knew this whole thing had disgraced his sister Tamar. Everyone's hurt by this, particularly the one that Amnon chose to, quote-unquote, love. Amnon thought he loved Tamar, and so he stripped her of her dignity and her purity and did nothing but hurt and devastate her life. Look at the words, desolate. She was weeping as she went. She was disgraced. Question for you. If Tamar was really loved by Amnon, if Tamar really was loved by her brother Amnon, real love, how would this whole scenario be different? I mean, Ratchet this thing back to the beginning of verse, or chapter 13, verse number 1. He's got a very, very exceptionally attractive half-sister. If he really loved her, how do you think Amnon would be toward Tamar? I mean, how does a brother act toward a sister who really loves that sister? 
Oh, I know the word was used. He loved her. But you and I don't call it love. We call it something else. We call it lust. Because we know that his attraction for her was purely selfish. Because if his attraction to her was really for her own good, he would never think of violating her. He would never think of hurting her. He would never think of forcing himself on her. He would never treat her as an object if he really loved her. He'd probably be one of those big brothers that doesn't let hardly anybody talk to his younger sister. You know what I'm saying? He'd be the most overprotective guy because he'd think, I want to protect the purity of my sister. I want to protect her. If I love her, I, I, I protect her. I guard her. I do what I can to be good for her. Not bad for her. Keep your finger here and turn over to Romans chapter 13. And I want to show you that Paul knew that this connection was a reality. And that though Satan comes and he peddles something called lust to you that he markets under the term love. It really is the antithesis of love. And if we could just for sake of argument take the person that we feel in some way tempted in our minds to be attracted to and say, I know that this relationship is not an appropriate relationship to engage in any kind of intimacy with, but I feel this thing that Satan's try to peddle in, trying to peddle in my mind as, as love. If I could recognize it as selfish lust and try and replace it with real love, my actions might just be the opposite. Oh, they would certainly be different. Drop your eyes down in Romans chapter 13 to verse number 8 as he discusses the debt of love that we ought to have for each other. Let no debt remain outstanding, Romans 13, 8. Accept the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man, underscore this, has fulfilled the law. What does that mean? Well, he explains it, verse 9. The commandments, and he starts, interestingly enough, with this one, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, they're summed up in this one rule. Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? How does that make sense? Because, verse 10, love does no harm to its neighbor. Question, does sin, in terms of our sexuality, sin and sex out of context, does that harm anybody? Yeah, it harms each participant. It harms everyone related. It harms everyone who is knowledgeable of it. It harms everybody. And the text says, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And love would then keep me from adultery. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're taking notes, jot it down this way. We need to replace lust with real love. And what I'm saying by that is, is replace what Satan is trying to pass off in your mind as love. And replace that with, with real love. Because if, for instance, you feel this attraction and you know it's out of bounds, if it's real love, then I may do the very thing that seems to take me and my gratification completely out of the equation. Because if I love that person and I love that marriage and I love those people and I love my own marriage, then I may do the exact opposite of what my desires are prompting me to. It may mean that if I love them, truly love them, I get my life out of their way. I extract my entire presence from their life because I wouldn't want to be a stumbling block to them. I wouldn't want to break up anybody's marriage. I wouldn't want to violate my own marital vows. Are you tracking with me? It's the replacement. 
Satan is going to say, hey, you love that person. And I'm saying, you say to yourself, I really should, you're right. And if I really love them, it doesn't mean that I would ever think of adultery because love does no harm to its neighbor and adultery is nothing but harm. It's nothing but hurt, it's nothing but pain. So here's the practical step, replace it, replace it, replace it. The ad comes in, Satan trying to tempt you, grass is greener on the other side. You really do like this person, you care about this person, you should get closer to that person. You know what you should say? I, you're right, I need to love. But Satan, not your brand of selfish love, but God's brand of love, which means that my actions that result from real love are completely different than the actions that result from Satan's kind of love, because that's a deceptive love. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Back to our passage, 2 Samuel 13. Not only do we see that Amnon got ripped off, because he did, he got ripped off. He shouldn't have believed the ads. Shouldn't have believed the sales pitch. And not only did he hurt everybody involved, including the person he thought he loved, if he just could have replaced that kind of satanic lust-filled love with biblical love, he would have said, you know, I'm becoming a protector of purity, not the destroyer of it. But look, if you would, in the next verse, verse 23, we're about to see a passage. It's extended, and it's extended for reasons that set up chapter 14, and we won't get to all these verses today, but we need to know what's happening in verses 23 through 39. What's happening is, and it starts with these three words, two years later. Something is about to happen two years after the fact. Two years, that's 24 months, that's over 100 weeks, that's a lot of time. Two years later, it's about the time where you're thinking, well, this is a past event and I'm sorry it happened, but it's back there, it's past. And something's about to happen. Absalom, who's silently stewing over his sister's disgrace, has a party, sheep shearing time in the ancient Near East. I know that doesn't sound like much fun to you, but it was a time of celebration and a time where they were about to make a lot of profits, and so they'd throw parties, sheep shearing parties. And Absalom goes to his dad and says, Dad, would you come? And he says, No, too many secret service, too many, you know, limousine camels, too many, you know, whatever he was thinking. He thought, It's too much, it's going to be just a hassle for you, no. And so Absalom says, well, What about Amnon? Maybe Amnon can come. And Dave's pretty savvy. He says, why do you want Amnon coming with you? And it says there in verse 26, that, or verse 27 rather, that Absalom urged him. I don't know what he said, but he convinced him, not fully because you see what David did. David sent with Amnon the rest of the king's sons. Yeah, maybe he's going to seek some kind of revenge, but he wouldn't do it in front of his brothers, and his brothers can protect him. So, yeah, okay, Amnon and all the king's kids can go. Look at verse 28. Absalom ordered his men, listen. When Amnon is high in spirits and drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. And then in verse 29, it says, so Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Absalom sought revenge on his brother, and he killed him. Two years later, in the middle of a party, drinking wine, having a big feast there on the table, some big lamb chops or something, they were chowing down on, all of a sudden he feels a dagger through his heart, and he falls over dead. 24 months after the infraction comes the penalty. There's something about sexual sin 
And though all sin is bad and all sin has consequences, there's something unique about sexual sin. One of the unique things about sexual sin is the longevity of the penalty. A lot of things you did, a lot of things you did as a teenager that you've forgotten. You came to Christ, you repented of your sins and God has forgiven you and they've never even come back up in your mind. But the sexual sins you've committed, talk to me about those. Do those not burn in, in your conscience and in your mind? Don't they come up when you're trying to tell your young children, your teenage kids, don't you, don't you have sex? Don't get in the backseat of that car with, with him. And in your mind, there's that twinge of your conscience based on what you did in the backseat of that car. And the longevity of the penalty of these things, the way in which the, the consequences, they, they seem to, to continue for years, decades. Sexual sin is that way. It's that way because God has a way of making sure you never forget it. Does he forgive you? Absolutely. I'm not saying he doesn't. God is never going to send you to hell if you're a Christian because of your sexual sins. He won't. But I'm quite sure he's not going to let you forget it. Because there's a penalty, a grave penalty that comes with it. There's consequences. There's a sowing and reaping principle that is exacted on those who cross sexual lines and God doesn't let you get off the hook easily. Reference worth jotting down, it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me just quote it for you. It says in 1 Thess 4, 5 and 6, in speaking of sexual sin, it says, you better not wrong your brother or take advantage of him in this matter because literally the text says, the Lord is the avenger of all these things. You know, the text is saying God will get involved. And God isn't going to let you off the hook or wink at this one lightly because sexual sin to him is, is, is severe. It's serious. 1996, in the summer, there was a petty crook that, real nice guy, he'd knock over old ladies and steal their purses. He was in Greenwich Village and he knocked over a 94-year-old lady and took her purse and ran. Some people apparently followed him or saw where he went, and the police were called. The New York City cops showed up, and they went into this apartment complex. They got this guy, and they arrested him. And sure enough, evidence was there. He'd stolen this lady's purse. Got in the back seat of the car, and the lieutenant said to him, Chicago Tribune reported this scenario. It was classic. Said to him, do you know who you just ripped off? No. Who? The cop said, you just knocked over and stole the purse of the mother of the most powerful mob king in all of New York City. And the Chicago Tribune reported the lieutenant's words in the paper which said, he slumped down in the back seat of the patrol car and said, how could I have been so stupid? Now what's the problem here? Why is he so upset? Because, of course, he has knocked over the wrong person who is connected to someone intimately who can snuff his life out. And he knew that person was pretty vindictive. When it comes to sexual sin, there is this side of God that you and I don't want to learn of. When God says, I am the avenger of all those things. Don't defile the marriage bed, he says. 
He talks about not leaving people who break these laws unpunished. He says in the passage that we've already quoted in Proverbs 6 and 7 and 9, he says you can't scoop fire into your lap and not be burned. He says whoever commits these kinds of sins, they'll, they'll remember it. Or Jesus put it this way in Luke 17, verses 1 through 3. He said, you know what? He said sin comes through a lot of avenues, and there's a lot of paths through which sin hit the Christian. But he says, woe to him through whom it comes. You don't want to be the cause for sin in someone else's life. And he said this, it would be better for that man to have a big gigantic cement donut wrapped around his neck. It was called a millstone, and that's what it looked like. It was about this wide in diameter. And it had a hole just about the size for your head. And he said, that's a perfect object lesson. It'd be better for a man to have a big gigantic cement donut around his neck and tossed into the deepest sea than to cause one of my children to sin. That's a good verse to make your teenage sons memorize, by the way. Are you tracking with me? Because there's a lot of gals in our youth group, young teenage girls, and God cares very much about their purity. And if your son is going to pressure or manipulate one of those gals to lose her integrity in the backseat of someone's car, I guarantee you he's going to make an enemy of someone he doesn't want to offend. And God said it'd be better for you to have cement boots on and tossed off the end of the pier than to start messing with my kids. I'm just saying God gets involved in these things. And it isn't a good it isn't a good thing. I put it this way on your notes if you're taking notes. Third thing. You and I, and just I know this sounds so simplistic, but you and I need to be good to our future. <laughs> when you make the decision that I want to be sexually pure in my life because there's nothing but grief down the road for those who cash in their integrity. I want to be good to my future. Because you've got two choices. You can, from this point on, live a sexually honorable and pure life. And that means you can find the fire to the fireplace. Or you can break God's rules and make your future a living hell. Because it can get there. You can punctuate your future with compromise and suffer. Or... You can toe the line and pray for God's strength and help, and you can succeed without any further penalty, without any further guilt, without any more nagging memories. You can have freedom. Oh, I know you have baggage, but from this day forward, it can change. Oh, God will still have you deal with the consequences of past mistakes, but praise God, you cannot add any more to it. My dad used to tell me that uh, if you aim at nothing, you know the phrase, right? You'll hit it every time. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. I find that in our culture, we're afraid to make commitments. I mean resolves. I mean signing on the dotted line commitments because we're so afraid that we'll break them. Well, let me put it this way. You will never succeed in this area of your life unless you commit yourself to it. You're afraid to make commitments because you may fail. You'll never succeed unless you make commitments. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's time right now for our church this weekend to recommit themselves. And I mean commit in terms of promise. And when I say promise, I mean oath. That we will live sexually in such a way 
that our bodies will remain honorable and holy before God. Sex is not the bad thing. I've already talked to you about that. God's all in favor of sex. He just wants sex to be in context. So I want you to turn to one more passage, and I want it to become our prayer of commitment. Turn to 1 Thess chapter 4. I've already quoted part of it for you, but look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 3. It talks to us about our purity. And it says this about God's will for our lives. It says, it is God's will. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That word simply means to be set apart, to be different. And in our world, in our culture, in this day, it is plagued with sexual immorality and sin. And he says, I, I don't want you to be like everybody else. Be different. That you should, and here's the specific, avoid sexual immorality. And here's our commitment verse, verse 4. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is, here's two wonderful words, holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not, who do not know God. And then he gives the warning. In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Back up to verse 4. There's our commitment verse. I want us to make commitments. If you're single, you know what this means. That you will conduct your life and that you will commit your body to reserve sexual conduct for the confines, the sacred confines of marriage. And that if you're married, you understand that there is one appropriate and lawful place for you to express your sexuality, and it's in your marriage, and it's on the marriage bed. That is God's plan. And that you will commit yourself to be this, controlling your body in such a way that to God it is holy and honorable. Now, I know you look at your body and think, well, whatever, right? But don't you want God to look at your body and say there's a holy and honorable body? Oh, let's make that commitment afresh. You're listening to Focal Point and a message called Critical Preparation for Fighting Temptation from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you'd like the study notes or if you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also stream the program anytime by downloading the Focal Point mobile app. If you've ever gone through a difficult season, then you know how easy it is to find yourself vulnerable to doubt, fear, worry, and even depression. We ask, does God care? Has he forgotten me? Well, Pastor Mike has written a helpful book on this topic and looks to the truths found in Scripture for answers to these questions and many more. Along the way, he shares how complete trust in God alone can restore your confidence and hope, and how God promises to love and protect you no matter what happens. When you make a donation to support Focal Point today, we'll send you a copy of Pastor Mike's book as our way of saying thanks. It's titled, Lifelines for Tough Times. Just call 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. 
And remember to ask for the book, Lifelines for Tough Times, when you get in touch. You might also consider joining the team of supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your monthly contribution plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future, and we're so grateful for your faithful and consistent support. So sign up today when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. We work hard to make Pastor Mike's teaching available for you in as many formats as we can, but none of it is possible without the generous donations of your fellow listeners. If you've given to support this ministry in the past, thank you. We truly appreciate you. I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. We'll be tackling the question, can Christians serve in the military? Be sure to join us Friday for Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.